Opinions expressed on ACB Radio are those of the respective program contributors and cannot be assumed to serve as endorsements of products or views of the American Council of the Blind, its elected officials, or its staff. This is Sunday Edition with Anthony, a news magazine show featuring human interest, in the spotlight, movers and shakers, and the news and happening that affects all of us in and out of the ACB community. Welcome, welcome, welcome to another Sunday edition. Thank you for joining me. As always, I am your host, Anthony Corona, and it is all about New York today. If I can make it there, I can make it anywhere, and I definitely made it and love it. It is my home city. It's where I was born. It's where I was raised, and uh, it's state city. It is always going to have a huge part of my heart, but before we dive into New York, I just want to uh, put out a couple of housekeeping messages. The first being that we are just a few days away from the full-on election day. If you have not finalized your voting plan, please head to acb.org slash voting for Clark and Claire's amazing voting um, information toolkit. Please get out there and vote whichever way you're going to vote. Every vote counts. Um, And There will be some really good programming this week on Advocacy Update with Clark and Claire, so please look out for that, as well as November being the Diabetics Awareness Month, and we are going to be hosting eight special podcasts surrounding health, uh, technology. Um, We're going to be highlighting some stories of people Um, who are in diabetics in action and have managed to manage and control their diabetes. We're going to have a conversation with an endocrinologist and a nutritionist. So please be on the lookout for that. But this is Sunday edition and it's all about New York, New York. I have um, a gaggle of fine, very fine ACB New York women here with me. Uh, Convention coordinator, planner extraordinaire, Annie is with me. Current president, Karen is here. Jean Mann is here. And in the background, who we will be speaking with in depth later, former president, Lori is here. Ladies, why don't you one by one say hello and tell us a little bit about yourself. Let's start with Annie. Hi, everybody. Um, Hey, Anthony. Glad to be here. Uh, It's very very exciting. Um, I'm Annie Chapetta. I'm actually the secretary of um, ACB of New York. And uh, I also took on the convention coordinator role. And it was it was great. It was kind of (laughs) crazy. It was fun. It was a lot of things. And um, I'm just so proud of all of us. Uh, And it's great to be here today. I'm so proud that uh, that my home beautiful birth state put on an amazing convention. And sidebar note, everybody, this is the Annie that suggested the title of our national convention last July, Path to the Future. Annie, thank you for that as well. You're welcome. It was. Uh, it, it's always rewarding when you can do something for an organization that uh, that's close to your heart, and that was that was really special. And we'll talk about some of your other pet projects in a little while, but um, Karen, Karen, thank you so much for coming to Sunday Edition. Tell us a little bit about your ACB journey and a little about yourself. 
Well, certainly, and thank you for having me, and thank you for doing this program on New York. We have so much here, and it's a wonderful place to live and to be uh, a part of right now. So I'm Karen Blackowitz, and I am the current president of the American Council of the Blind of New York. I'm very proud of that. Um, we've, I've just about completed my first year as president, and it's been a wonderful, wonderful experience moving the organization forward and working on some projects that have been very near and dear to me for years that are, are finally coming out and happening. It's, it's wonderful. Um, the original state convention this year was supposed to be in Buffalo, which is my home. And um, I am also a member of the Buffalo chapter. And it was with great disappointment that we couldn't do things in person. But um, with, with Annie steering the ship, um, it, was, it turned into an amazing convention. And we, we did get to do a lot of things we would normally do. And you got to reach, you know, across the country, ACB members from all over the place. And, and you know, like I said, we're going to get into some programming in a little while, but there were definitely highlights that in the Facebook community group and on some of the other boards. Um, so kudos and congratulations for really pulling it together. We also have Jean Mann. Jean, welcome to Sunday Edition. Thank you so much for joining us. Tell us a little bit about Jean and about your ACB involvement. Well, thank you, Anthony, and hello, everybody. Um, I'm Jean Mann from Albany, New York, originally from Buffalo, though. Um, I've been a member of ACB since the mid-70s and um, have been to many state conventions and national conventions, and um, I'm currently the second vice president of ACB of New York. Um, I've, I've held every office except treasurer at least once, and I think I've been second vice president once before, but, you know, what goes around comes around sometimes. So here I am. Awesome. Well, ladies, let's dive right into it. Um, you know, you've had national convention as a model. You saw Florida and Texas, California come through. When you knew that you weren't going to be able to hold an in-person in Buffalo, how did what was, you know, what were your first thought processes? Were you uh, excited to put on a virtual? Was it scary? I think both. I think it was definitely a little bit of both, um, but knowing Annie was going to be the convention chair, none of us were, were all that worried because we know her talents and her coordination efforts. And I mean, her secretarial skills have, have, are just absolutely amazing, better than anybody I've ever seen before. And we knew that she would draw that into uh, the virtual convention. And, and she did it and she did it proudly. and terrific well it takes a village so let's take a yeah. moment to recognize some of the rest of the village i know that you guys had your own convention coordinating team uh debbie hazelton and jason castingway has have really uh honed the process for the affiliates um i know i'm very excited because blind pride international is going to be the first special interest affiliate we're going to do a uh, virtual convention in January. So I'll be meeting, we'll all be meeting our convention coordinating team soon, but walk us through, um, walk us through your team and, and how things got started and what, uh, what you thought might have been hurdles and what you considered successes along the way. Um, this is Annie, sure. Uh, first of all, 
I think I want when when we, when we decided that you know when things well things decided for us that there would be no in-person convention because of COVID. In my mind, there was there was no decision to be made. It was well, we're just going to have a virtual convention. I mean, it wasn't something that I you know I was like okay, and I think I know what 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 we should be doing. So. So that's a good thing, I guess. There's a, you know, in my mind, there was no hesitation. It was like we're just going to forge ahead and um, and do what we do what we should be doing, um, and not let COVID get us down. Um, so, I guess that's you know, in just true New York fashion, we were going to just plow ahead and, and do what we were going to do. Um, so, uh, but uh, there was a lot of unknowns and anxiety and, uh, you know, trepidation, uh, being the coordinator and getting, getting the right people together, you know, that, you know, work, working together, um, getting to know the ACB radio team. Uh, I can't say enough about them. They were all just great people. They, they reassured me, they, they took charge when they needed to, they let me take charge when I needed to. It was, it was just, it, it, any 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 of the nervousness or anything I went I had going into it was totally alleviated by Debbie and Jason and Rick and Tyson and the hosts um, uh, Lynn Coates and Katie and Ray and uh, and Tyson did a little bit hosting too I think um, and if I've forgotten anybody somebody jump in and tell me who I've forgotten but, um, <laughs> so, so but it was you know. That's what it was. It was, you know, us going into it with kind of knowing what we wanted and 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 having um, some virtual conventions already having been um, under the belt uh, for for, uh, you know, for us to uh, to be able to, you know, model after. But we also wanted it to be unique New York. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. So, um, so that's. And, and, and ACB radio helped us make it that way because they let us let us do what we need to do creatively and and just guided us in the right direction so very appreciative and Tyson and Rick were your coordinating coordinating leads I would I would imagine at this point and, and yes. probably walk through the process with you every step of the way mm-hmm. did yeah. you guys did you guys have um, much participation in um, Florida or California or Texas or any of the conventions that have come? Uh, before uh oh yeah we had we had a couple of people register our registration was free but um we did have but we wanted to make sure that we captured the the people and the names and the email addresses so we could do like an you know um send out things afterwards or send up send out updates so we had um we had some people from florida um pennsylvania i know um and uh, a couple of people from the west west coast and maybe even in the midwest as well um so and i and i'm almost certainly sure that the stream captured a lot of that too so yeah i bet you guys can't wait to take a look at those numbers yeah what was interesting was i i um got emails from a couple people i know specifically somebody from florida who i've known since i was like 14 and somebody that i really don't keep in touch with um, I don't even know. Well, he was, I guess he had my email from alumni. I'm not sure. And after a couple of the sessions, I got notices from um, a couple of people, you know, emails saying that they enjoyed something and what time was, was something else going to start. And um, 
I don't know how much else they listened into, but yeah, it was really kind of neat. So I want to digress slightly. Uh, we'll come back to New York Convention, but Taryn, it struck me, and I've mentioned it on the show before. I've, I've of course, had Sheila Young from, from Florida. Um, I've had, um, you know, the president of California or the outgoing president of California, um, and along with her incoming president. I, how much leadership roles are taken by strong, capable, wonderful woman, women? Um, does, does that ever enter your mind that, you know, of the biggest states, of the biggest delegations of ACB, the leaders of those states are women? I can honestly tell you, I've never really put any thought into that, but I will tell you being a woman and, and being president definitely sets a great role model. And I, I do sit on the national board for Randolph Shepard Vendors of America. And the reason I'm saying that is because up until now, that organization has been very male dominant. And it, it, it is a privilege for me to, to sit on that board and to probably move up down the road. Um, so I'm hoping to set example and be a role model for some of the young girls out there. Absolutely. We actually had Artist Bazin on the show last week. And um, I mean, she's absolutely amazing. She's got some great insights on leadership and mentoring, bringing, you know, bringing the girls, bringing all of us, the boys and the girls, but most definitely showing and forging a path for, for the girls to say, hey, you know, I'm going to have this spot one day. Um, I know Lori yeah. is in the wings. We're going to be talking to her in a little while, but I'm curious when you took the presidency and, um, you know, began to run with one of the biggest states, New York, what advice did Lori give you in change of power? And, you know, what did she tell you going forward that uh, stuck with you and most definitely, most probably helped you get through planning this virtual convention? What can I say about that? I, I think what I can say about that is that um, what, what I learned from Lori the most is how I wanted to communicate with the members on my own. Um, everybody's style is different. Everybody's beliefs, practices, um, day-to-day -day living is very different. And one of the big things that not just me, but we as an executive board and the current board wanted to do is really to keep things relevant and moving forward. Um, so as much as I would love to take a lot of credit for things that are going on in New York, I have to acknowledge the entire board for the consistency of transparency which is something that's extraordinarily important to me, if to, is to have a transparent administration, do things the proper way, cross the I's or cross the T's, dot the I's, um, and, and follow good nonprofit practices. Thank you. So let's, let's go back to convention. What was the most challenging piece of programming to turn into a virtual presentation oh okay this is annie uh uh well <laughs> could i say all of it no um, <laughs> you, you can <laughs> yeah i i okay so i think for me it was it was 
uh, just making the flow happen. You know, what are we going to start with and what are we going to end with? That was that was really important to me because I wanted to start out strong and I wanted to end strong. And whatever happened in the middle happened, you know, would just take take its place. I mean, I'm a poet and a writer. Um, so, you know, to me, it had to be meaningful. It had to uh, it had to, you know, have good, have a good sense of uh, of of flow, like I said before. But it also had to, um, you know, hit other points as well. You know, it had to it had to, you know, have some resonance with with you know people that were listening. It had to be relevant. The information, um, you know, we also had to keep some traditional um, programming, like we have our town hall um, that that uh, takes place every Friday morning during our in-person conventions. So we kept that. We had uh, a little bit of trouble with the captioning. Um, and um, I gotta say, you know, uh, maybe I'm gonna buy Rick two cheesecakes because that's <laughs> 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 through a very troubling captioning connection there. Um, and uh, but I also wanted to, you know, uh, you know, try to honor as many people as possible that were part of ACB of New York and include as many people as I could in the programming. And that was the biggest challenge is, you know, trying to hit all those marks and, you know, so, yeah. Jean, you stated I, earlier that you've, you know, you've experienced quite a few conventions, both on, you know, the New York level and on the national level. So did it hit the mark for you? Did, did you get that convention feeling? You know, I find with, with every virtual convention, when you're sitting in, in, in a meeting, you do feel like you're there. Um, but then as soon as you turn it off, it's like you're back in your living room. And, the, I, you know, I understand we have to do virtual conventions right now. Um, our governor is very strict and wouldn't allow a gathering the size we would need if, even if we wanted to. But the thing that, the thing that I find... Um, difficult for me is that sometimes there are, are conversations going on in, in, in like our diversity one um, mm. and because you you're muted every time or not muted but well you are muted after you ask a question or make a comment it's hard to continue with the thought and the, and the thoughts kind of go back and forth because you have different people asking different questions or making different comments and, and, and so when it was over, there were still things that I wanted to talk to people about and you really couldn't do it. Mm -hmm. Whereas if you were at a, a, a live uh, on-site convention, you could stay in the room and talk or you could go have a drink or have dinner or, or meet later that night or do something to kind of continue on. So that's, that's the one thing that I find different is you don't have that, that personal interaction with people that you would have at an on-site convention. But I remember... I remember Friday night after everything was over, I actually felt kind of drained, like it had been a really busy day, just like I'd been at a convention all day, you know, in person. So we do the best, you know, we, I mean, they really do come off pretty well. You know, they're, they're, they'll never be a complete for everybody. They, some people probably will just assume we always have virtual conventions. There are advantages, you know, you don't have to find a room in your home and there's so many advantages that way, but um for me, it's the on-site is just, it's just better, but you know, it, it did hit the mark. I mean, we, it's as good as a virtual convention can be in my book. 
Yeah, I mean, and there are definitely, you know, there's something to be said for, you know, being able to sit on the couch in your pajamas and participate in a town hall or a diversity conversation, you know, to be able to mute yourself and, you know, go make yourself some food. And there's absolutely something to be said for, you know, wrapping up that meeting and not going out into the hallway and figuring out who's going to get some food, who's going to go back up to the room. So, you know, there are pluses and minuses on either side, but, you know, kudos and congratulations really for, you know, for turning out a convention that was well attended, well received, and you opened the door. So I'm going to walk right through it and let's talk about what most, most of the comments that I've seen so far are centered around the highlight of, of the convention, your diversity conversation. Can you walk us through the process of putting that together and, you know, was there, was there any, um, you know, possibility that you might not want to put that programming, you know, out there? And uh, once you saw the comments that I've seen, how do you feel about the success of it? I'll, um, I'll, I'll take that one to start sure. with. Um, sure. I'll, I'll begin with saying it was a necessary program. Um, I'm not quite sure that it exactly took on the life that we had envisioned, but it took on a life that was necessary for people to get thoughts and opinions and feelings out there. Um, with anything, we don't know what another person thinks until you tell us. Now, we, we all have television, we all have radio, we all know what's going on in the world. But to hear it from our own membership and to hear the passion and the hurt and the questions was a necessary conversation. So yes, I, I do hope that, and it will for sure here in New York, the conversation will certainly continue. Um, I'm, I'm pleased that it was um, played over national radio. It, it, it got the attention and the um, aha moments for some people that was well-deserved. What level of responsibility did you feel being, you know, it, it is New York, it is the state, of course the city, you know, New York City itself, but the state is extremely diverse. It's extremely open. And, you know, what level of responsibility did you feel in putting on that, you know, this piece of the programming in educating all of ACB or, or if not educating, allowing for the room for the voices and the questions and the comments in this space? I, I don't know that I would use necessarily the word responsibility more. I, I would say it was the willingness. Everybody wanted to do this. Everybody wanted to get this topic out there um, with, without um, worrying what, what everybody was going to think. It was an important topic that needed to be discussed and will continually be discussed. So I don't think we were doing it because we were, quote, supposed to because we're in New York. We did it because we wanted to. Nice. Uh, this nice. is Annie. Could I? Please. Okay. Yes. Um, well, first of all, uh, I, I, I really want to say that Stan Holbrook is an amazing person. And um, he brought out some, um, some serious discussion, but in a way where 
um, the people that shared could share without um, without judgment or anything. And I felt that was really important. Um, I think that uh, our state affiliate um, needs to do more work on um, including people um, of color and we need to, uh, we just started a, diver a diversity committee, uh, which is going well. Um, and I, I really wanna hear the voices that haven't been heard. And uh, I will do what I can as a person and an individual to see that uh, that, that happens. And uh, I, you know, I, I think the conversation that we have with Stan needs to continue um, what, what, in whatever way it's going to go. I know we have um, some passionate and important people to help make that happen. Uh, and, I, and I really think this is a chance for our affiliate to, um, you know, to, to really start making more connections uh, and, uh, and just move forward. And, uh, you know, we have, we have um, ACB to thank for that. Um, I mean, their leadership in terms of um, in diversity and, and talking about important topics, Black Lives Matter, and, uh, and we matter as people to help that happen um, and to help keep things um, in our hearts and move forward. So, uh, you know, Jeez. that was, yeah. Yes. Were you surprised at how open people were? And, and it seems how unafraid people were to, to comment, to make, to, to make their, their feelings and their thoughts known. Did, did that surprise you at all? Or, or did you know no, as, it, as the program started, it well, was gonna go well, that I didn't, way? I didn't really know what to expect. And honestly, I wasn't even gonna listen to it. And then something said to me, go see what's going on. And Actually, I think what surprised me the most, I don't know what kind of comments you saw afterwards. I think what surprised me the most was when I when I called in and started asking some of the questions and making some of the comments I made, because I really didn't expect to do that. There were things I'd been thinking, but I was always very careful about who I said those things to or, or made the, you know, asked the questions. And I kind of surprised myself that I was, that I was willing to bring up some of those subjects. Um, it, it certainly got me, you know, from the responses I got from the people on the program that night, it, it got me thinking, but it, it, it also made me, made me come up with more, more questions that, that I, I need to sit down and discuss and, and get a better understanding and a better handle on things. And unfortunately, because of time limits and, you know, the way the, the program was set up. I didn't have a chance to do that as much as I might have wanted to. But yeah, I think what surprised me the most was the fact that I was willing to to to, to make some of my feelings known and and ask some of the questions that I have felt that I've needed to ask. Awesome. What uh, what other highlights stand out for you, Jean, in New York's convention? Well, one of the fun things was when we did the New York through the decades. The ACB of New York through the decades, and he, and there again, we didn't have near as much time as as I would have liked um, to talk about some of the things that happened, and um, we opened it up for questions a little sooner than I than I thought we were going to. To tell you the truth, and I know I know Lori and I both said afterwards that we had lots of things that we had planned to talk about that we just didn't get a chance to. 
but um, just looking back, even when before the convention, when we were first asked to think about some of the things that had happened, it really, really brought back some memories. Um, and uh, so that was that was that was one of the highlights for me. I smell a series of community calls if somebody's willing to step up and host them. That was definitely one of the, another one of the highlights. How about you, Annie? What um what really stands out? What are you most uh, excited or proud about programming wise? Programming wise, I was I was uh, most proud of the GDUES presentation with the Federation um, of New York um, New York Federation of Search and Rescue Teams with Marlene mm. Kremen. Uh, yeah. GDUES, of course, close to my heart, and I'm the president <laughs> of GDUE, GDUES. But I we you know we we we're a new affiliate. We've only been, um, I mean, we're a new chapter, a special interest chapter um, since 2016. Um, and it, I think it's really important to have a presence at our state conventions. And uh, I was, that, that presentation was just, was excellent. Got some really good feedback on it. So, yeah. How about you, Karen? You know, the whole convention um, was was amazing, but, I think one of the biggest things that stands out in my mind is that we celebrated 50 years of advocacy and 50 years of ACBNY. And given the times we're living in and being forced to go virtual, it just really hits home on how nonprofits have to change with the times that we recognize the hard work and all the anchors of ACBNY in the past. But how important it is to continually move forward. And living in the age of technology, this proved that just about anything can be done. So yeah. I think that on top of um, expecting the unexpected, um, you know, honestly, I had to take a little bit of a backseat during this convention because as, as some people know, I came down very sick. If it was an in-person convention, I don't know that I could have even done half of what I ended up doing. And, um, you know, where, where you had said, you know, sitting on your couch in your pajamas, I'm gonna tell you, and, and I'm not even embarrassed to say this over national radio, I laid in bed in my pajamas with a vaporizer next to me, a cup of tea and a box of tissues. Um, running the business meeting and the things that I had to take care of. So it was an amazing experience moving everything forward. That's, that's a really great way to put it. And, and of course, we're very glad to, to hear that you sound better. I'm, I'm hoping that the sound actually matches up with the feelings. Um, I know you're going to do a little bit to pamper yourself after the show, so well-deserved. Um, when, you, you know, when you look back at it, you know, now that it's done and, you know, you've had a couple of days to process everything, what, um, what will you take going forward, whether you're going to an in-person slash hybrid, or we end up having to have another virtual convention? What, what will you take that, that you've learned from, from this convention forward? I think that the element of technology is crucial moving forward, that there has to be for any in-person now, there does have to be the element of virtual. And, you know, there, there's really no way of us knowing 100% how many people are actually listening in or, you know, um, 
you know, interested in the things we were doing. But we do know that in-person conventions can be costly. And this gives people the opportunity, you know, to stay home, not have the travel ex expenses or expose themselves to, to nasty viruses going around. So I think as an organization, we've definitely learned that moving forward, there has to be that virtual element along with the in-person. Yeah, I, I know that, you know, we had a couple of listening sessions towards the end of national convention. And, you know, one of the greatest things, you know, that was repeated in various ways over and over and over again was because of having to stay home and take care of my mother or my children or travel expenses, et cetera, et cetera. I never got the opportunity to, to experience a convention. You know, and hearing that, you know, multiple times really put, um, you know, put a fire in my belly to, to highlight the work, you know, that everybody puts in, whether it be national or state convention to, to bring this programming and to, to offer it in a way that, that everybody can benefit from it. And people that have never gotten the opportunity. I mean, Rochester for me was my very first convention and it was a life-changing experience, but Path to the Future, Florida, California, Texas, New York, West Virginia, this week with Pennsylvania. I mean, there's something, there's something learned from every, you know, from every convention, every experience. Can I just say, oh, go ahead. Sure. Oh, um, I want, wanted to say that you know, doing anything differently, um, I think I, if this was going to happen again, maybe shorten the days and add uh, a day. Uh, and also work on some fundraising that was into the programming. I know we didn't have door prizes or auctions or anything, but that's something that we could do if we had an extra day and we had um, we had some some people dedicated to volunteering to that. I think that would be really awesome. That would also increase you know the amount of people that would come. Um, so if we were to do it again or have a do over, <laughs> I would probably add another day um, and maybe even, you know, maybe, you know, and, and, and just in work in some, some fun incentives, you know, uh, I think that, that, that would be uh, something that was missing in New York that we could, we could probably attend to if we had to do this again. So. Um, How about a, couple your comments is, uh, a couple comments, if I may. Um, we're working on a couple more uh, special interest affiliates in New York State, so we may have to add an extra day just to fit everybody in. Mm -hmm. um, right. If we only want one thing going on at a time, which we do, that's another thing when you have a on-site convention, you can have two or three things going on at a time, but then sometimes people, you know, are upset because they want to do both of them and they can't. But what I was, what I was originally going to say was I missed three conventions in a row. Um, 16, 17, and 18, because I had some back and some knee issues, and I just couldn't do them. And ACB radio did broadcast the morning sessions and some of the afternoon stuff, but you couldn't really, you could listen to it, but you couldn't participate in it. So uh -huh. now with Zoom and, you know, um, all the stations and everything, um, it, and having as many Zoom rooms as they had, it's wonderful for people who can't make an on-site convention, even if we have them again, which we hopefully will, um, because you can you can really participate in it so much more if you can't be there in person. Yeah. 
So um, that's one of the things that, that, that I really thought about this year and what really stood out for me. You know, Karen, I'm going to put you on the spot. I'm going to ask something that I haven't asked um, any of the other states that I've had so far. Um, with the programming that you, you know that you have now in archive form, it's it, it'll be podcasted, et cetera, et cetera. And the the new quote unquote new blood or the the people that were never able to experience a convention, et cetera, et cetera. How are you going to take what you guys just accomplished and use that for you know strengthening of the ACB of New York membership generation, et cetera? That's a very good question. Um, I mean, obviously things are archived, so we can, um, you know, hopefully replay at, at different times. Um, but the feedback, the feedback we got from uh, the convention itself is, is where we need to focus to find out the topics and the interest of our membership and um, move that forward. It's, it's about listening to the people. Being president of an organization is not about what I want. It's about what the membership wants. And um, I think our board of directors is doing just a fantastic job at listening to the people of New York. Nice. Why don't you take a moment and shout out the rest of your board of directors and other people that helped make this such a, a great convention that aren't on the call today? I will do that. So it's a long list. Annie, if I miss anybody, please chime in. But, Want me to call uh, the roll, Madam President? Yeah. <laughs> well, let's, let's see if I can do this through, from memory. Okay, so um, I am president. I'm Karen Blackowitz. Um, our first vice president is Nancy Murray from Albany. Our second vice president is Jean Mann from Albany. Our secretary is Anne Chapetta, who's just fabulous. Treasurer is Michael Golfo from Westchester. And then we have all the directors. So I'll start in Western New York is Ian Foley. Rochester is Ann Parsons. Utica is Carl Gage. Albany is Michael Bryan. Michael Bryan, thank you. Um, Westchester is Rodney, um, what's Rodney's last name? Rodney um, Stanford. Stanford. <laughs> yes, thank you. Um, Greater New York is, um, is it? Fitzmartin. Fitzmartin, Fitz thank you. Long Island is Rosanna Beaudry. Um, guide Dog Users is Megan Parker. Uh, Citizens with Low Vision is Bill Murray. Randolph Shepard Vendors of New York is Alex Meister. I think I got wow. it all. Yeah. That's pretty darn good. <laughs> it's a great team. Um, they, we have a very functional a board right now that, you know, our board meetings, people are not afraid to ask questions. We're not afraid to... Um, be on opposite sides of an issue and at the end of the day you know we still call each other saying hey gene why'd you say that but cool i respect you for being so blunt you know we 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 have the ability to do that it's it's a very like i said functional working open transparent board of directors and 
90% of the time we do have open board meetings. We do invite membership to listen in. Um, we give them time that if they want to submit a question, um, we'll allow like the first 10 minutes for people to, to, to ask questions of the board. And then again, at the end, during the meeting, we ask for no interruptions, but that's just so we can conduct business. Um, and I, I think these steps are, are really just working to get um, New York involvement of, of the general membership. Yeah, we have a very and, active board of directors. We, I t believe me, as secretary, I could tell you, <laughs> I'm always writing up minutes. So, yeah. That's pretty darn and, awesome. So, go ahead. And, and one of the things as leaders, and especially um, our executive board, and again, it's such a strong executive board, but what, what we emphasize amongst one another's and then to the rest of the board and following through with the membership is the positive reinforcement of when somebody does a good job to really tell them, you've done terrific. Um, instead of um, what I have seen um, in the past and in other organizations and around the country is the constant criticism. We don't want to do that. We want to positively reinforce somebody for stepping up to do things. And what we're finding by doing that is more people now are coming forward and volunteering. Instead of being told, why did you do it that way? We say, you did a great job. Let's maybe look at doing it X, Y, and Z way, but you're doing great and I love your energy. And, and it's just something I really want to stress that as a board of directors, it is our job to convey that positive reinforcement to encourage people to step up as leaders. Otherwise, nobody's going to want to. And, and that's a really, really valid point. I, I love the idea of mentorship. I love the idea of taking and harnessing energy and, you know, dispersing it throughout the organization and highlighting where people have a passion, have an energy, have a talent, and, and really giving them the opportunity to step forward and use that. And along the way, cultivating, just like you said, you know, X, Y, Z, you might even learn that X, Y, Z might actually be, T, you know, QRS combines with XYZ Absolutely. and now you've yes. gotten an, you know and another level of or layer of things so thank you for saying that I really really like that Talk. Anthony could I could I could I do a shout out to some people? you absolutely yeah. can please <laughs> I'm being a pain. Um, so uh, I wanted uh, to, to thank Audrey shading for um, for helping with the through the deck through the decades uh, I want to thank Ian Foley for taking care of the what a wonderful scholarship um, and uh, uh, affiliates in action. Ian really came through and gave me a break during you know uh, the time of uh, all that pro programming. So that was important. Um, I want to thank Megan Parker for um, steering me towards Stan Holbrook uh, for the diversity session. Uh, who else? Um, so far, that's it right now. My mind is going blank. So anyway, well, let's shout back out to ACB Radio again because again, oh, ACB Radio. <laughs> yes, where you're thank listening you, is you, our business. You. Yes, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So Taryn, um, Annie, Jean, all of you, you mentioned you've gotten um, a, a chance to feed uh, to 
uh, wade through some of the feedback. Talk to New York and talk to ACB at large. Um, what should uh, what should your members expect of New York going forward? What are you excited to work on now? We are definitely looking forward to, as I said before, really pursuing the diversity conversations. And as Annie said, we we did start a diversity committee and. You know, one of the big things we're, we're pushing in New York is, um, um, wow, I had a word and it just totally escaped me. Don't you hate when that happens? Yeah, inclusion. I do. Inclusion. We want everybody to feel welcome, um, to, to volunteer, to step up, to do stuff. We want everybody to feel welcome at conventions, whether they be in person or um, virtual. Um, Moving forward, we are really excited about some new chapters or affiliates that may, may come on board um, down the line. Um, just growing the state in advocacy and the more groups, the more chapters, the more affiliates, um, the stronger New York's membership will be. And maybe we should talk about some of those advocacy things a little bit, like yeah. voting like like making absentee ballots more accessible. Um, like Lori's gonna talk about the pedestrian safety um, issues going on in New York City. I didn't realize that 90% of their traffic um, signals are not um, accessible. Um, what's the other thing we're working on? Something else? New York, I can't think of. New York alert system, which that's Annie's, um, you know, project right now. And Annie, if you want to speak to that. Sure. Uh, basically, uh, we have a, a suit um, with um, the New York alert mass notification system not being accessible um, through screen readers or through checks to speech technology. And uh, we, the press release went out, I believe, 10 days ago. Um, with disability rights and, and um, a DRA, and um, looking looking at changing the whole context of the website so that uh, people like myself can get onto the New York Alerts notification system, um, choose you know what you know choose what I want to you know how I want to receive messages, which messages I want to receive, and um, and do it all independently, uh, you know with the with my technology right now that's not possible and uh you know just we're working on that so uh you know sometimes you know one one thing i do have learned over the years is that um, these types of things take uh, a long time to kind of gather oh. you know steam and move ahead and gain attention and um I, i'm just glad that we have we have um you know we, we have a chance to make a change, uh, you know, and I, I don't know if anybody knows about the New York alerts mass notification system through New York State, but, uh, you know, go go take a look at it. And, what, what is particularly know. sad about that case uh, regarding New York alerts is that that website for many, many years was totally accessible. You could select your region you could select how you wanted your your emergency notifications right. everything from like traffic on the long island expressway to bridge traffic to you know water alerts in 
you know, whatever town you live in. Um, and then they went and contracted within some place to do their website and they totally redid their website. It's called Everbridge. And, and it, I'm sorry, Annie? It's called Everbridge. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. And it became inaccessible overnight. <clears throat> the other way around that's crazy yeah it's <laughs> totally and then, weird. The, so. and, and then there's exciting stuff going on around the state too buffalo was one of the cities chosen to do a um a model and a practice run on changing sidewalks and bicycle paths and um uh scooter paths and, and the president of the western new york chapter is ian foley who has volunteered any consulting services that he can give as far as, you know, you can't block sidewalks. You can't, um, the, the bike rental, um, it's, it's yeah, a whole thing. That yeah. The, mm -hmm. yeah. The city of Buffalo is putting into place where you can rent a bike, but okay. But then where do you park it to keep it out of the way? And, uh, so there is a lot of real fun, exciting, um, changes happening in New York around the entire state. But, um, you know, our primary focus is always on advocacy and um, the more people interested and the more people willing to step up, the stronger we'll be. So I want to um, alert Byron, if there is anyone in the waiting room with a hand raised, uh, let us know. And while we are, um, while we are waiting for the Byron to check, if you guys can give out some contact information for New Yorkers or across the nation if they want to give you some feedback on the convention. But, you know, can you give us those, some contact information? Sure. You want me to? Uh, uh, so if you want to give, if you want to email us any feedback, you can email us at convention at acbny.info. Uh, uh, you can, um, I don't remember the toll free number. <laughs> so maybe someone does, but I don't. I'm terrible. 800 522 3303. Thank you. Uh, or you can go, I mean, if you're interested in um, ACB of New York, you can go on our website. It's www.acbny.info. Awesome. Lori. Is there still, is there still a, um, a membership thing up on the web member? I can't remember the emails come to me because I take care of all the membership stuff, but I don't remember what the, is that still up there, Annie, do you know? You mean membership at acbny.info? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's there. Okay. So is president at acbny.info. Yeah. <laughs> Basically, yeah, we make it really easy to get yeah. to us, no matter where you go on the website, yeah. Dot info, if you want to join, if you want to see some of the great work New York is doing, definitely go check out the website. Definitely sign up, New Yorkers. Sign up, sign up, sign up. Membership. We, yes, we also have a we have an announcement only list. So if you contact convention at acbny.info, I'll definitely get that. Um, so, and that the, the announcement only list goes out probably between four and six times a year. And it just pretty much is there so that people who aren't members can get our newsletter, can get notifications on our convention or um, any initiatives Where that we're can. putting out. So, yep. Lori, past president, you, um, you experienced some of the convention. Any thoughts that you'd like to give to the ladies and uh, to our listeners? I think it went fantastic. It was... Uh, 
packed full of lots of great pre presentations and uh, everything was right on schedule. Byron, do we have anybody waiting with a comment or a question? As of right now, I do not see any uh, hands raised. All right. Hey, Anthony, we also have a Facebook page, American Council Please. of Blind of New York, Inc. So, that's, and it's very yeah. active. Yes, it is. Uh, I am still uh, counting myself as a member. <laughs> New York will always be my home state, even we'll though I am now- take your dues anytime. <laughs> <laughs> which reminds me i probably actually have to repay but uh we'll talk about that <laughs> offline why don't um why don't you guys give me a little bit about some of the special pet projects that you guys are involved in let's start with karen oh goodness where would i begin <laughs> um, i mean on a state level obviously i i sit in on all committees so there's you know, the diversity is definitely the newest one. Um, um, and probably one of the most interesting. Um, I'm very active in Randolph Shepherd Vendors of America, as, as I've already said. Um, some new projects. We're working on getting together some community calls right here in New York. Um, David Dumphy is a terrific, energetic young man. Um, and um, we're, we're looking to see if he's willing to host some with, with very focused topics. And um, I, I will say through the convention, some of the topics that came up were, you know, blind parents and, and just, just a lot of different things that we haven't had. And, and we don't, New York does not have a families group, um, but it's something that's near to me because I am a mom. Uh, I have four children, four grandchildren. So being a parent and being blind does have its challenges. So and then um, New York and Jean's heavily involved in the um, the Braille, um, bringing a Braille revival to New York. And I'm sure she can talk about that. Um, but just, God, we're all over the place. We have so many projects that there's just so many to list. Well, I am definitely going to go to Gene, but before I do, you mentioned David, and um, he is an awesome newer member to ACB, um, or re-energized, I should say, member to ACB. There is a great article on ACB Voices, our blog. Um, if you have not checked it out, please go check out the article on David and all of the voting and advocacy stuff that Clark and Claire is putting on. That's acbvoices.org. Please hit the subscribe button so that you'll get it straight in your email when there's new content. Jean, what are you yes. working on that you're excited about? Well, I'm um, the membership chair for ACB of New York, so I'm the one that gets to uh, add, uh, delete, and change all the um, membership information on the um, the ACB, I don't remember what it's called, the certification thing website. Um, I am working, I help with publicity. I used to edit the newsletter all the time. I just did one for Annie this last fall because she was so busy with convention stuff. Um, I do a lot of proofreading because I have a braille display. Um, I sometimes mm. say I'm the ghost writer of ACB of New York because a lot of times, <laughs> yes, um, a lot of times um, Mike Adino used to send me stuff all the time and say, would you look at this? And then I would prove it and in some cases, do a little editing on some what got written. So uh, sometimes people will 
have letters they want written and they just, you know, they know what they want to say, but they don't know how to put it into words. So I'll say to them, send me a rough draft and then I'll write it for you. So um, on, on the, um, we are starting, attempting to start a Braille Revival League of, uh, affiliate in New York State. I'm um, involved with that, with Lori Scharf and Audrey Shading and a few other people. On the national level, um, I'm one of the co-chairs of the MMS committee. I am on the credentials committee. I was a chairperson, but then when I had to keep missing conventions, I told Tim she should probably have somebody else chair it since I was never there. And I'm on the awards committee. I was on the board of directors a long time ago, but that was that was a long time ago. So um, that's probably just more, but I can't remember it. So that's about where I am. I'm gonna go to Annie, but before I um, before I ask Annie about her pet projects, if people are interested in more diversity conversation, or they want to, or they want to uh, contact you, is the membership email the one to contact, or do you have anything specific for for that committee? I, uh, we don't have an email set up for that committee as of yet, but people are more than welcome. Um, to email me at president at acbny.info. Awesome. And it might also Annie, be a Annie. Facebook discussion. You know, you might want to, I mean, people could always go on Facebook too. Awesome. And of course, there is the Facebook community page for all of ACB. And I am mm -hmm. sure if there's a posting there, you guys will respond pretty rapidly. You ladies will respond pretty rapidly. Yes. Yes. Absolutely. Or, Annie, 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 tell us about some of your pet <laughs> projects. And when you're done with ACB stuff, tell us about your books and um, where they, they can where they can find some of your writings. Oh, okay, sure. Um, pet projects. Well, uh, at our re when our recent uh, business meeting, we decided ACB New York decided to go ahead and um, develop a, a, a survey committee, a standing survey committee, because we. We, we did a Google survey with our membership and it was so well received. We got so much really important, relevant information from our members. We're going to probably uh, work towards making it a regular thing. And, you know, we're going to work towards developing it and um, making, you know, just making it more relevant because we, we really found a lot of important information from, from creating the survey. So that's one thing. Uh, and another thing, I'm I'm also the chair of the of the electronic resources committee, so we're working on a plugin so that we can um, be able to offer audio content on the website. Um, you know, nice. uh, so we have we'll have the podcasting stuff up or the archives for the convention, things like that. Uh, and the website's always a work in progress. Um, it's just, you know, there's there's stuff that's static and stays the way it is. And then there's other stuff that's constantly going to be have to be changed. So we have a great webmaster. His name is David Annette, Stonebridge Media. Woohoo, David, shout out. Um, uh, and our Facebook page, uh, really trying to pump up how it interacts with everything else and I've got to say the new Facebook dashboard has made it easier to do that it's different it's you've got to relearn some things um, mm -hmm. but in terms of sharing with other pages and working on that they made it a lot easier to to interact um, and and to network through Facebook so um, and I've the last week or two I really 
I, I was like, wow, this is a lot easier than it used to be. So we're doing that. Um, and we're hoping to get a better Twitter presence going. Um, and, you know, the, of course, the community calls. So I'm looking forward to all that great stuff uh, happening uh, and just making connections. So um, awesome. on to me. Uh, yeah. Okay, so um, I have. I have four books out. You can go to www.anchapetta.com. And my name is spelled, uh, my first name is A-N-N. And my last name is C-H-I-A-P-P-E-T-T-A. Um, two P's, two T's. Two P's, two <laughs> T's. <laughs> so you can go, you can go to anchapetta.com for all my books and learn about me. And I have audio content up there of a whole bunch of stuff. I also have a blog called thought-wheel.com. And uh, I'm working on a novel that hopefully will be out next year. Uh, and uh, I just had a poetry reading that uh, Jason Castingway helped me um, um, record. And I had it um, edited. Uh, and that's also on my website. It's an evening of poetry. Um, and, uh, you know, I just love to make connections with people. And, um, you know, I'm hoping to do more with my poetry in, uh, in the area of diversity. Um, I have a couple of poems that I've started. Uh, I think I really want to, uh, that'll be the next thing I explore, um, how my, how me, my personal experience um, will uh, be able to help um, future, um, you know. Well, I would, yeah, so. I would love you to come back to Sunday edition when you've got some of that, okay. some of that worked out and uh, sure. maybe we'll do, you know, Annie's corner once, <laughs> you know, once you've got some work that you want oh, to share I, with Yeah, I want to hear from other poets that, that you know, that, that, uh, that, that have a diversity experience, um, you know, and then we speak specifically to it and maybe we can share with each other and then, sh and then learn from each other through, um, through prose and poetry. I think I would really love to, to, to do that. Okay. That's beautiful. And I, I can smell some, some more community calls around that. That would be beautiful. <laughs> yeah, for sure. All right. I'm going to throw it to Byron one more time to see if we have anybody with any questions and comments. And then I'm going to ask Karen for her final thoughts as uh, mistress of New York. <laughs> um, let's see. I don't see anybody um, with raised hands. However, two people um, just came in. Um, Leslie and... Um, not sure who the other person is. I, I don't see I don't see who they are now. So if either of you have questions for the people that were just speaking, let, let us know. Otherwise, we'll move on. All right, Karen, any uh, any final thoughts that you want to impart this afternoon before you set off for a little bit of a pampering session, which is so well deserved? Well, and, and thank you. Um, yeah, I have two that I'd like to kind of just touch on just as far as um, states hosting conventions, you know, my, my big piece of advice is to expect the unexpected and always have backup plans. Mm -hmm. um, that would definitely, <laughs> after being as sick as I was, always have a backup plan <laughs> and, a great, and a great convention chairperson who's, who's there to pick it up for you when, when you need it. Um, oh, well, you would have done question. it for me if it happened the other way around. So that's the way it works. Absolutely. Yeah. Yes. And, and trust your team, um, you know, uh, to, to address the presidents, you know, trust the people you're working with, positive reinforcement, 
and keep things moving forward. No idea from a member is a dumb idea. It's always worth listening to and exploring and really exploring every option that's out there. And I, I am so willing, Anthony, to, to talk about this at length if you ever decide um, to do more on presidents and, and moving affiliates forward. But it's, it's important to me. And I want everybody out there to know that you know, I'm always out there to talk, to um, bounce ideas off of, and I'm always here to listen because I certainly don't have all the answers. So teamwork and working together is what's going to move each affiliate forward, but then as a whole, move ACB forward. Absolutely. And that is definitely an idea that I would like to pick up on in uh, early on in the new year. I know artists, um, Basin, who I had last week, uh, runs the membership focus calls and some um, uh, some awesome stuff on the president's list. So we will definitely be back with some shows surrounding how to grow your affiliate and how to maximize uh, the talent that you have in your affiliates. So please absolutely come back and talk about that. I am going to let Karen and Annie go. I know that they have other commitments and I want to thank them so much for coming onto the program. Jean, I think you said you were going to stay and uh, interact a little bit with Lori and Tori when we come back from this brief message. But before we take the message, Byron, one last call. Did anyone raise their hand? Well, let's just take a quick look over here. Let me get over to the right uh, window. Uh, I do not see any raised hands, so I guess we'll move on. All right, Annie, Karen, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you so much for putting on an amazing convention. I hope you have a beautiful, beautiful Sunday ahead. We will be right back. Hi, the American Hi, Council of the Blind plays an Hi. important role in the daily Hi. lives of blind and visually impaired individuals all over the country. Whether it's making products and services more accessible for the blind, advocating for appropriate education for blind students, issuing scholarships to deserving college students, fighting for accessible currency, along with a host of other issues, it takes contributions from all of us. You can help by joining the monthly monetary support program, MMS. It's a great opportunity for members and friends to make sure these efforts continue. What ACB does enhances all of our lives. For more information, go to our website, acb.org, click on the donations link, go to the MMS tab and enter or call 612-332-3242. And we're back with Sunday edition. That was some messaging surrounding MMS, the monthly donation system. Um, David, 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 Treasurer David, if you're listening, I got it in there and I'll put it in again throughout the holidays. But um, before we get to Lori Jean, is there anything you wanted to tell us about MMS? Or uh, do you want to make a pitch for people to go to the website and uh, sign up? Sure. Um, we... Um... We're always looking for more donations. We had a wonderful, um, a wonderful um, outpouring of support at our convention last summer. Um, what we're going to have an article in the forum in November. But what I'll tell you now is we are going to do um, a, a drive, a fun drive again during the leadership conference in February. And anybody awesome. who anybody who signs up or increases their donation. 
by at least $5 from the end of the convention last summer through the end of the leadership conference in February will be eligible to win a 32 inch smart TV. And, yeah. And it, even if you win the TV, you will still be eligible to win whatever we decide to give away next summer after the virtual convention next summer. So anybody, anybody who signs up from the last convention through the end of the leadership conference in February will be eligible to win the TV. And anybody who signs up from the end of last convention through the end of the summer's convention in 2021 will be eligible to win something. I don't know what yet, but we haven't decided. And Jean, so before we before we talk to Lori and open up that conversation, when they join MMS, they can also select to send portion of that monthly donation to uh, committees or special interest affiliates of their choice, right? Yes, up to 50% of what you donate can go back to an affiliate of your choice. And then if you want to give to more than one affiliate, you have to sign up again. But every time you sign up, half of what you donate will can go back to your affiliate if you want. All right. Well, please help me welcome Lori and Byron. Do we have Tori on yet? Tori is here. Yeah, I saw yes. her come in. All right. So please help me welcome friend to the show. Lori has been here a few times. Lori, and you can introduce Tori. And we're going to be speaking about uh, the judgments and success that you guys have finally gotten in New York City with pedestrian signals. Hey, Lori. Hello. And Tori, why don't you introduce yourself? Because I don't know a lot about you. <laughs> yeah. Oh, you know a lot about me, Lori. We just need the Corey and the Dory for the complete set here. Um, <laughs> hi, Anthony. It's, it's great to meet you. This is Tori Atkinson. I am a staff attorney with a nonprofit law firm called Disability Rights Advocates. Um, we have a long history with ACB and numerous uh, affiliates all over the country. We have represented ACB um, with getting audio description on HBO, Hulu, and Netflix. We brought an original case against AMC theaters. Um, and most recently, um, we filed a case in New York about the New York emergency alert system being inaccessible. Um, in addition to the infrastructure cases that we've done related to accessible pedestrian signals and sidewalks uh, in New York City. So I'm very happy to be here um, and we love ACB. Well, before we actually dive into the conversation surrounding pedestrian signals, um, can I ask a question for the membership? There's been a lot of conversation back and forth about inaccessible medical platforms, both, of course, from the consumer side, but also from those of us that are in the field and can't necessarily get our work done um, succinctly and because the platforms that are being used are not accessible. Is that something that um, you take on as well? Yeah, we actually recently filed a lawsuit on behalf of the Lighthouse um, against ADP because their um, payroll system was inaccessible. So certainly um, let me know. You can always reach me um, at T Atkinson, T-A-T-K-I-N-S-O-N at DRALegal.org. We'll put that in the show notes. And that, um, that was the San Francisco Lighthouse, just so folks know. Correct. Awesome. All right. So this past week, a judgment was made. And um, let's talk about the journey there first. Who, um, who, when, where, how was this all initiated? 
So it's kind of funny because in preparing for today, I was going back through documents and um, ACB of New York and other disability and transportation organizations are on the record as early as 2005 at city council meetings discussing accessible pedestrian signals. Um, and when New York City was going to transfer their walk, don't walk signs into visual uh, pictograms, for lack of a better word, of people walking or not walking, ACB of New York um, said this really is, is not going to work for a lot of people. I can't tell you how many low vision folks were able to see a walk, don't walk sign. And now with the visual images, they cannot tell what it says. Mm -hmm. And they don't have enough vision either because of glare, distance, color vision, whatever it happens to be, to see the actual traffic signal to know what's going on. Um, so the um, initial work on this case really was laid in late 2009, early 2010 by initially uh, Mike Dino and Pratik Patel. And uh, they gathered a group of organizations along with the mayor's office for people with disabilities and a very lengthy letter, which a 11 organizations signed on to, no, actually, I'm sorry, it was more than that, um, of all different blindness organizations, ACB of New York, NFB, guide dog users of NFB, as well as uh, educational programs, all signed on to this one document and it was sent to various elected officials explaining why the changing infrastructure in New York City for pedestrians was becoming more and more challenging. And um, the PASS, which stands for Pedestrians for Accessible and Safe Streets Coalition came out of this and continues to work along with New York City for the installation of accessible pedestrian signals. However, in 2010, when we started this journey, there were 12 intersections that had accessible signals, and those locations were near facilities that either housed people who were blind, or provided services to people who are blind. Currently, like Cells Manor and Cells Manor, and yeah. Like Cells Manor yeah. is is uh, subsidized housing for people who are blind. Mm -hmm. And um, currently, there's about 696 intersections that have signals. In great part to the work that the Past Coalition has done with New York City. And um, Jean Berkwin particularly has worked very hard as part of the PASS coalition to help the 
the city and for PASS to agree to a intersection prioritization tool so that when somebody does request an intersection have a signal installed that the city has a way to prioritize how that intersection falls within um, you know the, the need for installing an accessible pedestrian signal. Jean is a uh, certified orientation and mobility instructor and has worked extensively on accessible intersection design and actually taught it on uh, taught orientation and mobility instructors on the university level um, how to work on accessible intersection design. Um, I so just realized I that people may not know what an accessible signal is, so I want to I was just gonna clarify ask you that, that yes. because a lot of people call them audible pedestrian signals, and that's not the correct term. An accessible pedestrian signal is a signal that provides vibral tactile, meaning you can feel the ar an arrow that shows you which way that um, particular push button activates the pedestrian signal for, or an auditory cue, which in current standards is a rapid tick. Um, some people say it sounds like gunfire. It's a slow tick when the light's not in your favor and then it changes. And the reason that that is, is because basically you don't need to know what street you're crossing. You don't need to know the name of the street. You can listen to the auditory part and say, okay, well, this signal that's off my left shoulder is now rapidly ticking. I know that it's for the street in front of me, not the street next to me. And that's because there are standards as to how these poles should be installed in relation to the crosswalk and all of those funky, interesting things that really we don't need to know about. And that is one thing I would like to say is that ACB of New York and several of our affiliates, uh, Long Island, New York City and Westchester in particular, have been working heavily on accessible to pedestrian signal education for both our members because as a user we have to be educated mm -hmm. um, and we also need to talk knowledgeably when we speak to people within the industry sometimes what we want is not what's required and it's not the safest so we really do need to ourselves so that we can speak knowledgeably about intersection design and, and things along those lines. So that was basically the groundwork that ACB of New York and the uh, PASS Coalition laid. And Tori, if you wanna take it over from there. Well, before Tori takes oh, it over, I'm, I'm gonna I'm sorry, play yeah. Neophyte as show host and, and ask, they were changing these intersections across the city, across the board. And the technology already existed. So why wasn't it part of the planning in changing these pedestrian signals? Uh, you know, the visual content, you go to the little man who, you know, is walking or, or not walking. Why wasn't it already laid into the design plans to add more, um, add more pedestrian signals for our folks? In our 2010 uh, letter that was written as part of the PASS coalition, which like I said, ACB of New York is part of, or was part of, um, 
and it states that they were using an outdated version of the uh, uniform manual MUTCD manual for uniform traffic control devices. They were using an outdated version um, and relying on old information. And even once they were made aware of that, they still were not interested in updating uh, or changing their procedures. Uh, Corey, is there anything else that you could add to that? You know, that's right. Between essentially, in 2004, there were about 12 APS throughout the city, and they were all the very old bird call type signals. The first one was actually installed in 1957. That's your New York City trivia for the day. Um, and <laughs> Between 2004 and 2011, they started replacing those with the more modern ones that had been, um, as Lori explained, uh, uh, with the requirements as laid out in the MUTCD. Um, but they were obviously getting hundreds and hundreds of requests per year from ACB, from other blind advocates um, to install more APS. And um, they, when they replaced the, the, the text crossings with the iconography, the pictograms, as Lori said, they replaced every single signal um, without- And it like overnight virtually. Yes, without installing APS. So they did a, a wholesale replacement without considering APS. And, and my understanding is that they've always considered the APS program to be a separate program. Um, and it was really done on an ad hoc basis um, until the community was able to advocate um, to the New York City Council mm -hmm. and get a local law passed, which I think Lori was going to talk about next. Um, yeah, you can, you can, oh, do you have, I don't remember when that was. Actually. It was in 2012. Okay, yeah. Um, yeah, so I mean, there's there's incredible testimony going back over 10 years, um, really trying to explain after the, the DOT, you know, wouldn't include more APS was moving so slowly um, to local politicians to um, get some kind of for, force the change that needed to happen. Um, and in response in 2012, the New York City Council passed a law that required the city to install 25 per year, um, which was more than they had been doing. Um, and then following further advocacy that that was not enough they amended the law in 2014, but it took effect in 2016 to install 75 a year. And just to give you a sense of how inadequate that was to address the problem, New York- That's in all five boroughs? All five boroughs. New York City wow. has 13,200 signalized intersections. And New York City installs about 100 to 120 new signalized intersections per year. So the city itself has about 45,000 intersections, most of which are not controlled or don't have signals. Um, but as areas develop and become more populous, um, they will install signals for pedestrian safety. And so the city was installing 100 to 120 new signals every year without APS and only retrofitting 75 a year. So until we filed this lawsuit, the city was becoming less accessible over time because they weren't even keeping up with the new installations. And so 2012 and 2016 were moment, excuse me, uh, tongue freeze, momentous movement in moving forward in this arena. 
what what happened between 2016 and just last week? Oh, sorry, Lori, I wasn't sure if you were going to take that. Oh, um, <laughs> so basically, um, ACB of New York um, decided that, you know, things were not moving fast enough and um, actually another uh, one of uh, Tori's colleagues had reached out to me as president of ACB of New York and I said, okay, uh, you know, this is definitely something that we are still concerned about and we remain concerned about. And um, also within that time period, what is called the lead pedestrian interval um, was really becoming heavily used. And the lead pedestrian interval is basically something that can occur overnight by a flip of a switch by the Department of Transportation. It can occur at a specific time of day, but not another time of day. So you could be crossing the same intersection and not know that this change I'm gonna tell you about has occurred. And a lead pedestrian interval is when you as the pedestrian are given the right of way prior to your parallel traffic surging. And it averages anywhere between five and 15 seconds, depending on the intersection. That is a huge amount of time when you're talking about crossing a street. It also is because you're not, as a blind person who's listening to traffic without an accessible signal, you are standing at a curb and a sighted driver perceives you as not moving. So they think you're not crossing the street, even that you're standing at the curb. So then you hear a traffic surge and you start to walk, but that car may have already started to make its turn. Uh -huh. So you are really, as a blind person on lead pedestrian intervals, put at a huge, huge disadvantage. Um, and it's something the past coalition was not even aware that those intersections were altered until after they were altered. And um, they have made it abundantly clear to the city that where there is a lead pedestrian interval that those types of intersections take priority. Um, the other thing that was changing in New York City is um, what we, what I, I call, and I don't know if there's another term, Tori may know, mid-block crossings where they close down a street and, and they allow you to physically walk across the street at a certain point mid-block. They do this in Times Square, actually. Yeah. Um, and that's a situation where as a blind person, you're not going to know that it's safe for you to cross mid-block. You have no way of knowing that. So without an accessible pedestrian signal there, you're not gonna know what's going on. And the PASS coalition has actually worked at the Times Square intersections with, uh, or I'm sorry, uh, Plaza with New York City on that, on that specific issue. 
And the irony here is that all of these changes, these LPIs, um, these mid blocks, these exclusive pedestrian phases, EPPs, when all the lights are red at the same time, these are all efforts the city was making pursuant to Vision Zero. Uh, these were efforts to make the streets safer for pedestrians, except they're making them more dangerous for blind pedestrians. Um, and that obviously was a situation that really highlighted the extent to which they weren't listening to the concerns of the community. They weren't obeying and, and complying with their legal obligations. So I'm, I'm going to put the neophyte hat back on for a second and ask how much of this had to do with cost? I mean, if they're implementing these changes already, was it too costly to add audio uh, audible pedest pedestrian it, signals in in my opinion um accessible pedestrian signals when added at the time an intersection is being modified um is the most cost effective because otherwise you have to go back and retrofit and that's usually going to cost more money so tell us about the judge's decision Tell us where we are now. So we filed the lawsuit in 2018. Justice is slow. <laughs> um, mm -hmm. And we had, we had moved for summary judgment, which essentially means that the judge can decide the, the legal liability without going to a trial because none of the facts are in dispute. And in this particular case, none of the facts were in dispute. <laughs> um, you know, we, we know that APS is necessary to ensure safe intersections for blind and low vision and deafblind people. Um, we know that they haven't been installing them when they install new intersections. We know that they haven't been installing them when they renovate intersections. Um, we know that they don't install them when they add LPIs. And, and most of all, we know that in a city with 13,200 signalized intersections, only 443 at the time we filed our motion had APS. That's less than 4%. And the law requires that all uh, government services and programs and facilities like this be accessible to people with disabilities. And so that, that was one of the legal hooks here is that um, the city needs to provide meaningful access to its signalized intersections. And we showed by the fact that you're likely to only hit one in 20 intersections having uh, an APS, it's certainly not enough to get from point A to point B, um, that that wasn't sufficient. And so the judge um, listened to the, the stories of our clients in the class, and the class here is over 200,000 um, blind and low vision pedestrians in New York City alone. Um, and said, you're right, this is dangerous, and there are not enough APS out there to provide meaningful access so that people with vision disabilities can safely move around the way that non-disabled people can. Um, so that was, that was really, really huge. We also challenged um, some, some of these alterations that Lori was talking about. And just to kind of back up and give you a, a big picture um, explanation of how the ADA works. The ADA essentially has two components to it that fit together. The first is cities have to provide a baseline level of access so, it, so it, you can meaningfully access the service program and activity, period. Right. And clearly there's not enough for that. 
But the second piece is that, you know, we know it's going to be expensive to make everything accessible. We know it's going to take time. And that means that when it's time to install something new or when you're going to alter or change something, that's your opportunity to say, hey, is there a chance here to make this feature accessible? Is there a way that when we change that, we can make sure that it is now accessible to people who had previously been excluded? And so those two pieces fit together. So with that second piece with alterations, we had challenged a lot of the changes that they had been making. Um, and one of those changes was, as Lori said, the, the swapping out of the displays, um, which unfortunately, because it was 20 years ago, um, the judge said the statute of limitations had run and it was too late for that. Um, we had also challenged when they do renovation projects, um, they have these pro projects that are called capital projects and street improvement projects where they, right. they dig up the street and you know rearrange the signals and put in bike lanes or wh whatever they're doing in those particular situations. Um, and in that case, the judge simply said that we hadn't identified which specific intersections um, we were challenging. We were challenging the practice, not particular intersections. Um, so he didn't grant it to us on, on that, but he left it open for us to um, argue for specific intersections. And then the third piece um, were the LPIs and EPPs. And we were very disappointed that the judge didn't agree that those were alterations that triggered the requirement to install APS. Um, but that said, he really did point to the testimony, not just from ACB members and, and other blind advocates about how dangerous they are, but from the city's own people who admitted that they knew that these changes were making the streets more dangerous for blind pedestrians. And given that, um, he made clear that when it comes time to remedy this discrimination, to really fix it and put us back, um, or, or really in this case, move us forward to, to a more accessible city, that needs to be a consideration in terms of how any prospective relief, how any remedy is going to look. So we are, we are pleased with that. So are you going back to the drawing board and identifying intersections and going to do a phase two of this, or is there another mode of, of moving forward that you're looking at? Well, there's two tracks. The judge ordered us to do two tracks. One was to decide whether we want to challenge specific intersections, but the second is just um, for the meaningful access claim, for, for the fact that there's really only three, or actually now they say 5%, hurrah, 5% um, uh, APS in the city. How do we fix that? Um, and so this is going to be something that we want to work with the city to come up with a, a remedial plan to remedy this. We're willing to. Um, and if that's not successful, we're going to have to work with the judge to come up with something. Okay. Now, how can ACB members of New York or ACB members nationally how can they get involved? What is there anything that we can do to add our voices to make this more impactful? That's a good question. I mean, I'm certainly open to hearing from anyone in the community who has thoughts about what the remediation should look like. Um, you know, we we certainly intend to prioritize LPIs and EPPs and really obviously dangerous changes the way that the judge has instructed us to do. Um, but I'm certainly open to hearing from folks. There's nothing there's nothing people in the community can do right now. Um, 
in New York City. I mean, outside of this, we have also filed suit in Chicago. I think Chicago has 10 APS in the entire city. Um, so we really, really hope that not only does this decision force a culture change here in the city, but that it's a signal to the other cities out there that they have also been uh, uh, lying down on their obligations and they need to get with the program soon. Okay, and I want to backtrack a little bit. I, I mean, being from New York, I, I know exactly uh, what you're talking about when, when you're talking about an LPI and an APP, but how, how do we identify them when we are in transit and we are you know, moving through our day? How can we identify them? That's really hard. Like I said, because there are so many factors that come into play as a blind person, it's really hard to independently identify it. So what you want to look for if you have somebody that's sighted or you could ask a fellow pedestrian is when does the walk sign come on versus when does your traffic surge on your parallel traffic occur? So your walk sign will come on prior to your traffic surge on a lead pedestrian interval. Yeah, and that only gives you a few a few seconds once um, once the traffic is about to surge. It, so you're actually missing your walk. Is. You're actually missing your cross time. Right. Well, it's not that you're necessarily missing it. It's it's an extension, right, of the cross time. But so. you don't know it, right? I'm sorry. But you don't know it, correct? Unless, yes. Unless yep. you have that pointed yep. out to you, is you there can't any benefit from it? Right. Okay. I'm sorry. That was much better wording. Um, is there any education, um, in New York for New York City residents or other cities? Is there any education out there about identifying these or ones that have been identified, um, that you can you can go and find? Why is it so? Um, hard I don't know. Um, ooh, all of a sudden I'm hearing other people talking. Um, Me too. Um, the, um, I don't know, Tori, do you remember how many they have that are lead pedestrian intervals right now? Yeah, New York City has almost 4,000 leading pedestrian intervals. And the, there is guidance on this. I mean, the um, PROAG, the Pedestrian Rights of Way Accessibility Guidelines, which are, um, complicated history, but but there's a, a, an organization called the Access Board um, that brings together transportation experts and essentially interprets the ADA and comes up with um, guidelines and regulations for how it applies to pedestrian rights of way like intersections. Um, and there it's very clear that LPIs and EPPs really need to just have APS. I mean, that's how you make them accessible, right? There's no other way, as Lori said, to communicate that the light is on if you don't have APS. Um, and the MUTCD also strongly recommends that any intersection with LPIs and EPPs include APS to make it accessible. Um, so there is there is this guidance document and, and, and other guidance documents out there. And I believe New York State's Department of Transportation has also agreed with that. Um, but ultimately, yes, I mean, you've really, you've really hit the nail on the head. There's no way to know that it's on without APS. APS is what you need um, to tell you that there's an LPI, to tell you that the walk sign is on even though you're not hearing the traffic go yeah and and you know like gone are the days when 
your pedestrian that when your lights in a particular location are control are the same every time you cross if there's yeah. traffic conditions they can sit at a command center and switch everything around and you know as a blind pedestrian that is also why accessible signals are so critical because we just don't know i have to wonder if the the techie gurus out there can, can develop some sort of app to give us um you know we have we have maps and GPS and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, you know, we have things like Lazarillo. And well, I do know New York City Department of Transportation um, had done some research. Uh, with they have a pilot program. Yeah. And, on 23rd Street. And they've done some research regarding people carrying some type of other device. And I don't, rem I don't remember if it's on your phone or not because I didn't participate in it. But I have heard from numerous people who have participated that they did not like it because, yes, it alerted you to the signal, but it also, they, they did not always feel like they weren't getting directional information from it because they were holding the device. Yeah, right. so there's there's yeah. a lot of there are, there are two kind of ways to do it. One is Lori said is it with a phone, one is with holding a separate device. And as I understand it, holding a separate device is how it works in France. Um, so you're issued this device by your Department of Transportation that you now have to carry with you. The issue with these devices, um, and the issue that um, the researchers have really <laughs> stumbled on is that they're not a replacement for infrastructure. Number one, it means you have to hold something in your hand as you're crossing the street. And many times the other hand has a cane or a guide dog or a shopping bag or whatever. And so it really limits what you're able to do. And then yeah. the second problem is the directional problem. How do you know which intersection you're pointing it to? Because it's usually Bluetooth. So you have to be pointing it at the right intersection in order to get the accurate information but you don't have any other contextual clues about which direction to point the device and then the third issue is that the you know any device runs out of battery we've all had our phones die and the worst time most of the time and you have a huge population here who would benefit from APS people who are older um, and poorer and may not have access to a smartphone app enabled device that they are fully competent and using um, so yeah. really the, the perspective that many of the researchers have is that these app based or device based um, navigation systems are very interesting and could be an excellent supplement but they're not a replacement for actual infrastructure. Let's face it, if there was a way for them to take away the visual pe pedestrian head, which is what sighted people are looking at, they would have done that long ago. They can see the light. They know when the light's red, when the light's green. They can watch the traffic. If sighted people didn't need the walk, don't walk, or whatever whatever that word was that Tori said before for the, the person that I can't remember, uh, walking and or not walking, they would have done away with it ages ago, but obviously sighted people still need that. So redundancy is necessary. Particularly when this is a safety issue. I mean, if you're wrong in how you're pointing that phone, you could walk into a bus. Yeah. Do we have numbers on, you know, the amount of accidents that happen 
um, for our community versus, you know, the community at large? No, because that's never a statistic that's taken. They don't ask you on an incident report, you know, are you blind? That's not a checkbox. Gotcha. So I always and say, you know, they can, they can never say, you know, people, you know, this helps people successfully cross the street. It's more about educating blind people on how to correctly and deafblind people how to correctly cross the street using accessible pedestrian signals and having them to use so that we can cross the street, but we will never have statistics unless the Federal Transit Administration requires it similar to race or ethnicity. Gotcha. No, I mean, there is research about the efficacy of APS. Without right. APS, the percentage chance that a blind pedestrian is crossing at the right time is about 50-50. With APS, it's a 97% accuracy rate. Which is hugely different, obviously. And, and there's also fantastic research. I think it was done by Jean Berkwin, possibly, and uh, it might have been Joy, um, about stepping off the curb and how many seconds you gain when using an accessible pedestrian signal versus when you don't have an accessible pedestrian signal present. So I know along the way, and, and this is somewhat of a shift in topic, but I, you know, I know along the way of my own personal education, I've heard stories of, you know, people in smaller municipalities, smaller towns, et cetera, et cetera, that have advocated for having certain signals, uh, you know, certain, um, intersections signaled, et cetera, et cetera. What does the process look like in New York? Well, in all intersections, the um, signalization is controlled by whoever owns the infrastructure for that area. So the first thing that you have to do is identify who owns that infrastructure. And usually it's tagged on the box. Um, and Tori can probably speak about the process in New York City better than I can because I don't want to mess it up. Do you mean the process to have APS yes. installed? Um, yes. Yeah. 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 So anyone from the public can request APS at a particular intersection. And then what happens is they go out and they evaluate the intersection with this ranked prioritization sheet. But, it, but it's important to remember the ranked prioritization sheet is how, what to do when you don't have enough money and you need to prioritize things so that next year you have more money and can do more. That isn't how New York has been using it. New York has been using the prioritization sheet for everything. So instead of just installing APS when they do a new intersection or renovate an intersection, which they're legally required to do, they rank it and they put, they fill out the form and they rank the sheet. Um, and, and it's really, it's really unfortunate because if the city had been doing right all along, the amount of work that needs to be done to remedy this discrimination would be so much less. Now that you have had these notes given on the cases on the cases that you presented from the judge, will that make advocating for changing the way that the uh, ranking system is used easier? Well, we're we're not looking to change the ranking system per se. The New York City, in conjunction with the PASS Coalition, has developed a tool to specifically rank intersections in New York City. And like I said before, the lead pedestrian interval is, is one situation where that is given a higher priority in general. Um, so 
we're not looking to change that. We're looking to just remedy the situation. Will the judge's recommendations add weight to changing the outlook and going forward how these uh, are retrofitted, modified, or you know, installed for the first time ever? Oh, sure. I, the judge made very clear that when they install a new signal and it doesn't have APS, that's a violation of the law. Um, and similarly, when they do certain renovations and alterations and they don't install APS, that's a violation of the law. So in terms of what we're going to do to fix all of the inaccessible renovations and inaccessible new installations that should have been made accessible the first time, that's kind of a separate question of that. Then the perspective relief of going forward, they need to, to shape up and they need to um, develop and implement policies and practices and procedures that ensure that APS is installed at those moments when it really needs to be installed, when there's a new intersection, when there's a renovation, when there's an opportunity, usually when the city is choosing to spend money on something to say, hey, can we make this more accessible than it was before? Can we make this more inclusive and more universal? So is the mayor's office for disability, um, is that the place to, to send emails to, to, to make phone calls to, to add your voice? And if you are a New Yorker who notices that something has changed and it hasn't changed favorably, you go to complain? Um, you would go to the Department of Transportation. There is a form that can be filled out on their website. Okay. Yes, they have an accessibility advisor, um, but I would say, I mean, I say this with anything, if you have a problem, tell everybody, tell the M mayor's office of people with disabilities, tell DOT, tell your elected representatives. I mean, those local laws that got anything done were because people went to council meetings and they wrote their council members and they wrote their state senators and said, this isn't right. Um, and that really pushed it. And when it comes time to making funding allocations, those are things that politicians have the power to do. So, you know, I say try everything until someone listens. Is New York looking and, and at keep, other, I'm sorry, oh, go I ahead. Was just, I was just gonna say, and keep records of everything because that's really important to be able to go back and say, look, we contacted all of these people and you know, nobody has taken a step forward in, in getting the ball rolling. Is New York looking at other cities that have been way more progressive in, in this area? I mean, I mean, I know if you travel in Seattle, there's the um, ratio of uh, intersections that are to aren't is a lot higher. Um, same thing with cities like Austin, Texas. It does, does New York, I, I guess what I'm really asking is, do they, uh, do they want to do better or are they being forced to grumbly do better? It's, it's a really good question. And I think, uh, I think the judge had that question too. And um, he asked the city this in oral argument. And I he also say that I know he, he, he quoted them in his written opinion that said, it sounds to me like the city is trying to lose this lawsuit because there isn't the political will to shell out the money for what you know you have to do. I have to say it was a long decision, 67 pages or something like that in length, but as a non-lawyer, it was an interesting read. <laughs> <laughs> and just in case there are listeners out there today who would like to take um, the time to read it, where can we find it? 
It's on the case page for um, the the DRA website. So if you go to DRAlegal.org, um, it's, it's probably still on the front page right now, but if you click on the press release or on the case or search for it in the search bar, um, the full decision um, made fully accessible should be available on our website. Awesome, thank you. So we definitely have a few more minutes. Lori, Tori, um, if you want to plug, pledge, um, you know, inspire, please take a few minutes to speak to our membership at large. Well, I, you know, certainly would urge um, anybody across the country who feels that accessible pedestrian signals are an issue to, you know, first start trying to work with the municipality that owns the uh, has jurisdiction over the intersection and also, you know, definitely reach out to disability rights advocates. They were at the ACB National Convention in New York, uh, ACB National Convention when we were in Rochester and the ACB of New York chapter was very pleased to host Tory for the day. And we did have several people who showed up um, and the fruit of that event was the work that's now being done in Chicago. Nice. Tori? I would just echo Lori and, and just say generally, you know, when something isn't right, when things aren't moving fast enough, fight for it. I mean, push and push and push because um, a lot of these municipalities or really any company that doesn't consider accessibility, um, they are not going to make change on their own in some cases. Um, and sometimes it takes, in, in ACB's case, over 10 years of advocacy to make it happen. Um, but it can happen. It can happen. And we really, really hope that this decision and all of the others like it, like sidewalks and HBO and all the things that I've already talked about, these are, are ways to send a clear signal that the ADA is alive and well, that uh, uh, entities like the city of New York have legal obligations to people with disabilities um, and they can't just ignore them. So I think a lot of people were excited by um, the recent HBO Max decision. Tori, what else, what else should we be looking at advocacy wise? What else, what other fights are, are going on now that we need to pay attention to? I, I, that's a question for, for you and your membership. I mean, we want to represent your interests and what things are important to you guys. So the most recent one we did was the New York alert system because we are currently in a pandemic, um, in an emergency, and yet the alert system isn't accessible to screen readers, which is ridiculous. Um, and we had done a similar emergency case right before Hurricane Sandy. Uh, ironically, the trial happened during Hurricane Sandy about emergency preparedness and how in the event of an emergency, there was no plan for how to assist people with disabilities. Um, but that's, a, that's really a question and I would turn to, to your listeners and to the community about what's important to them and, and what changes they want to see. And it's, it's really important to educate yourselves about what are rights, what are responsibilities. And, you know, sometimes people can be unreasonable with what they think is a right. So, you know, it is important to educate yourselves. Um, you know, the New York Alerts case, we probably started working on that in... 2018, looking at accessibility, accessibility of the website at various points, having different members try the website out using different screen readers and, you know, um, and, and really laying the groundwork on that. 
and you know it is important to to say like okay i know this can't be used you know and persistence persistence and persistence persistence, persistence. Yeah. so tori if you could give us your information again and while she's doing that byron is there anyone with any questions and comments or comments uh, i tori? don't see any right now but if anybody wants to raise their hand we will certainly do that Sure. And my email address again, so this, I, I'm Tori Atkinson and it's T-A-T-K-I-N-S-O-N at DRALegal.org. Lori, thank you so much for bringing this topic to me. Thank you so much for coming on Sunday edition again. Um, we look forward to having you again. Tori, if there's any cases or things that you're working on that you need uh, our membership to know about, please feel free to contact me and come back to Sunday edition. This has been a great show. I want to thank Karen, Annie, and Jean from the previous segment. If you haven't had the opportunity to check out New York's programming, it will, it is or will be in podcast form. Definitely check out some of those seminars, including the diversity conversation and uh, Annie's guide dog uh, programming. And thank you for tuning into Sunday edition. The show can always be reached at the email celebration, C-E-L-E-B-R-A-T-I-O-N, tack on my initials, A-C, celebration A-C at AOL.com. If you have a question, a comment, a show topic, I'd love to hear from you. Ladies, thank you so much for a great show. Byron, as always, thank you for all of the behind-the-scenes work. And ACB Radio, thank you, thank you, thank you for giving me a Sunday brunching opportunity every week. I will be back next week with an awesome show. And have a great week, and please get out there and vote. This has been Sunday Edition. You've been listening to Sunday Edition with Anthony on ACB Radio Mainstream. For more information, questions, comments, feedback, suggestions, etc., please email celebration AC. That's the word celebration with the letters AC at AOL.com. Look forward to hearing from you and let's brunch again next Sunday.